Our Bible reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of John. John chapter 12 and reading from verse 1 to 11. The Gospel of John reading at verse 1 of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what? was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Let's pray. Lord God, the psalmist says, Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that we might have a teachable spirit. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Are you ready? Are you ready for Holy Week? To use some of the proposed service headings for that week. Are you ready to consider the cost? Share in the meal. Consider him. Are you ready to make your way to the cross with him? Like all of the Gospels, John's Gospel is really one long preparation for Holy Week. Designed to get us ready for the final week of Christ's life here on this earth and the cataclysmic events contained in it. And to say that this is a big build-up is an understatement. John starts with a clear declaration that Jesus is God, the Word made flesh in the first opening chapter of the Gospel. And then continues in these chapters with a seven-day scheme mirroring the seven days of creation. This culminating in the wedding of Cana in Galilee. Seven days which anticipate the seven days of the final week in Jerusalem 
those days that we know as Holy Week. And between, and the rest of the Gospel, the imagery of seven is foundational. The central part of the narrative of the Gospel is structured around seven great signs or miracles that Jesus performs. The changing of water into wine at Cana. The healing of the official son. The healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethsaida. The feeding of 5,000. The healing of the man born blind. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. And these are amplified by seven great I am utterances by Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the life of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. And when we remember that in scripture, the number seven signifies completeness built up on the God-given structure of the seven days of creation, we hopefully begin to get some sense of the magnitude of what the Gospel of John is building up to. The magnitude of Holy Week. The magnitude of Jesus. Are we ready for Jesus? Are we ready for all that Holy Week holds for us? Are we ready for all that we can learn about Jesus? All we can learn about ourselves? All that we can learn about what he has for us to do for him? We're not, of course, quite there yet. Next Sunday, Palm Sunday, signals the start of things. But this morning we're going to look at this incident in John's Gospel, which immediately precedes these events. In John 12, in verses 1 to 11, which I invite you to turn to now. And this in order to get us ready. Ready for Jesus. Ready for him to come afresh into our lives. Come in holy triumph. Come in sacrificial love. Come in resurrection power. It's all about Jesus. His centrality, his significance, his sovereignty. All about how we respond to him. That's why John's Gospel was written. These are written, says John, in chapter 20, verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is what is at stake. This is what a response to Jesus will or will not bring forth. Light or darkness. Life or death. A desire for Jesus. Or a departing from him. The gospel is all about Jesus. All about how we respond to him. And John 12 is no exception. Here in the very shadow of the cross. Events unfold which revolve around Jesus. Around Jesus and Mary. Around Jesus and Judas. Around Jesus and the crowd. So first, Jesus and Mary. Bethany is just over the hill from Jerusalem. And it was where Jesus had previously stayed with his friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. His visit, recorded in John 11, was at the behest of Martha and Mary. 
because Lazarus had died. Jesus brought him back to life. The meal recorded here would therefore have been a very special one for the sisters. They owed their brother's life to Jesus. It would have been an occasion of joy. The joy of Jesus who'd restored Lazarus back with them. And it's Mary who gives fullest expression to that joy. She's ready for Jesus. Ready to respond to him in a fitting way. After a day of walking, in open sandals, on a Middle Eastern road, feet were hot, dirty and smelly and needed washing. It was a menial, rather unpleasant task that servants would do. If no servants were available, the host would provide water and towels for the guests to wash their own feet. No one would expect a host to do it themselves. Mary does so. And with a kind of extravagance and exaggeration that would have astonished those present. She washes Jesus' feet using a vastly expensive perfume. It was one of those perfumes that were enormously valued in the ancient world, costing a fortune because it came from far away, probably in this case, the Himalayas. A family, as we were told, could have lived for a year on the price of this perfume. Mary pours it over Jesus' feet without a second thought. And then, if that wasn't sufficiently over the top, she wipes Jesus' feet with her own hair. Something that in the culture of the day would have shocked onlookers and raised questions as to Mary's character. Letting her hair down in public was something that a woman of good repute would just not have done. But Mary doesn't care what others think of her. Jesus takes up all her focus. It's what he thinks that matters. And what Jesus thinks is made very clear. He says to Judas, leave her alone. Don't bother her. Jesus is self-evidently for Mary. And ultimately, that's all that really matters. It's what Jesus says that really counts. It's what Jesus thinks that really counts. Then and now. Whose words 
carry most weight as far as we're concerned. The words of Jesus are the words of those around us. Mary, of course, says nothing. But what she does speaks far louder than any words she could have found. The extravagance of her love for Jesus is expressed in the unconventional, some would have said the outrageous nature of her act. She is ready. She's ready to respond to Jesus in a fitting manner. And what she has to express requires her to do something expressive enough for the purpose. And she's ready to do this. Ready to do this for Jesus. What is it that Mary gives expression to? Love for and gratitude to Jesus? Most certainly. But there's more. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial, says Jesus. Mary's act of extravagant love amounts to the anointing of Jesus' body for burial. She anticipates his death. She anticipates the cross of Jesus. And albeit in perhaps a very ill-defined way, there is in this an acceptance that this is the way that Jesus must go the way of the cross. Mary is ready for this, ready for the way of the cross. Are we? We know much more than Mary did at this point. We come here familiar with the Gospels in which time after time Jesus spells out the necessity of the cross and the necessity of those who follow him Taking that way. If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, he says. Jesus says in Mark 8 and verse 34. Are we ready? Are we ready to take the way of the cross? Ready for the sacrifice involved? Are we ready? as Mary was, to pay a price. That what we know of Jesus and what we give an expression of that might come to be for others the fragrance of life, the fragrance of Jesus. Mary's Sacrifice, her pouring out of that perfume for Jesus' sake, changed the whole atmosphere in that house. The whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Filled, we might say, with the scent of the resurrection. The hope of life to come even in the shadow of the cross. Hope of new life in Jesus. Who the last time 
he had been in that house had said, I am the resurrection and the life. They who believe in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives in me will never die. And Mary, the fragrance of love, love for Jesus, transforms that place, brings the fragrance of life, brings the fragrance of Jesus, brings the hope of the resurrection, but not without cost, not without sacrifice. The cost to Mary was great. But this incident heralds the cost that Jesus would pay. The cost that Jesus would pay on the cross. And that would be infinitely greater than any other cost that anyone might pay. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Are we ready? Are we ready to give of ourselves for Jesus' sake? Ready for the cost of doing so? That the fragrance of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the hope of the resurrection might fill the places we live our lives in. Jesus and Mary, Jesus and Judas. Before Judas says a word, we're told what his response to Jesus will be. He will betray him. It's a persistent habit of the gospel writers to tag Judas in this fashion. It's as if they cannot recollect anything Judas said or did without remembering that he was the one who ultimately betrayed the Lord of glory for 30 pieces of silver. And even today, in an age in which biblical illiteracy is all pervasive, to be labelled a Judas still carries a degree of censure that few other words do. And this is one of these scenes in Scripture that provides us with a great contrast and therefore a great challenge as we consider the scene. As we see Jesus standing there, as we see Mary standing there, as we see Judas standing there, the challenge is posed. Where are we standing? Are we with Mary, worshipping Jesus with everything she's got? Or 
Are we with Judas? Cautious, prudent, reliable Judas, as he probably would have seemed to most folk at this point. Certainly, the objection that Judas raised a superficial plausibility. The perfume was worth a year's wages. In the culture of the day, the sum involved was enormous. A great deal of good could have been done if it had been sold and given to the poor. But the reality of the situation and ultimately, the reality of Judas's response to Jesus is revealed by the damning indictment of verse 6. Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what? was put into it. This was Judas, Judas's response. His response to the ministry of the one who said that he was the good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep. Judas was not ready to take that narrow path. Judas cared nothing for the sheep. His focus was in mammon. And in Matthew's gospel, it's at this precise point that Judas goes to the high priests and says to them, says to them of Jesus, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. This is Judas' response to Jesus. His response to the one who says to him, you will always have the poor with you. You will not always have me with you. You will always have the poor with you. Commenting on this verse, John Calvin says, when Jesus says that the poor will always be with you, he is, it is true, reproving the hypocrisy of Judas. But we may learn from it the valuable lesson that gifts of money for meeting the needs of the poor are sacrifices and are a sweet savour to God. Calvin is merely underscoring God's consistent call in Scripture for his people to give to the poor. Presently, in the rubble that is the city of Aleppo in Syria, devastated by war and more recently by earthquake, the giving of God's people has enabled local churches to reach out to those in need and give tangible expression to the love of Jesus Christ. He who looked upon the crowd and had compassion upon them because they were like sheep, without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless. Jesus had compassion upon them. A compassion, a care that is already alluded to. 
Judas did not exhibit. We are to care for the poor because the Bible tells us to. The poor you will always have with you. You will not always have me with you, Jesus says. Jesus says this in the context of being anointed by Mary. Not only because he sees his cross and burial on the near horizon, but because he knows who he is. The Word incarnate. God the Son. Worthy to receive the same honour as the Father. Were a mere mortal to claim such, he would have been mentally ill or unspeakably arrogant. But Jesus is God, the one and only, as one translation of John 1.18 renders him. And this is he who Judas is departing from. John 13 and verse 30 tells us that when Judas went out from the upper room to betray Jesus, it was night. Doubtless, this is historical remembrance, but it is also profound theology. Judas was being swallowed up by the most awful darkness, indeed, by outer darkness. The fragrance of life that had filled that house because of what Mary had done for Jesus was to Judas the smell of death. You will not always have me with you, says Jesus. Terrible words when we apply them to Judas. Jesus and Mary, Jesus and Judas, one ready to continue with him, one about to depart from him. As already said, the challenge this presents is stark. Where are we standing? With Mary? Or with Judas. Jesus and Mary, Jesus and Judas, Jesus and the crowd. A large crowd came to see Jesus, most likely from Jerusalem. And given the proximity of the Passover, probably at least some would have been pilgrims from further afield. The drawing power of Jesus is a consistent feature of the Gospels. And they came because of what they had heard of him. He who said with authority, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth and the life, I am the true vine. In our day, often spoken of as a day of small things, it's good to remind ourselves of who Jesus is 
and that he is the same yesterday and today and forever, still able to draw people, still able to change them, still able to save them. Even in days like ours, it's good to remind ourselves of this, remind ourselves of Jesus, keep our focus on him, keep our eyes fixed on him, keep him at the centre of things, having confidence in him, responding in faith to him. Is this a response to Jesus? Is this the place we give him? Are we ready for Jesus, ready to go on with him, ready to be used by him, as Lazarus was. We read that the crowd came not only because of Jesus, but to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And we further read that it was an account of Lazarus that many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So how did this happen? Clearly only by God working in their lives. Only he can change the heart. Only he can bring faith. Only he can bring salvation. However, these folks have not only come because of Jesus, but because of Lazarus, whom he has raised from the dead. And surely the most natural thing in the world for them to have done in this situation would have been to ask what had happened. So what would they have been told? They would surely have been told what happened as recorded in John 11. That Lazarus was four days in the tomb. That Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And that the dead man did just that, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. They would have been told that Jesus took, said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. They would have been told that from the first to last, this was all of Jesus, all of God. They would have been told, most probably by Lazarus, a witness to the truth. A witness to the truth that the word of Jesus brought life. There's nothing of this in the passages concerned. The focus is entirely on Jesus, where it always should be. But here in John 12, Lazarus is mentioned. Lazarus is involved. And we're told that his involvement has great effect. We're told that on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Words which speak of a conscious conversion, a move away from religion as they knew it, into the beginning of a new saving relationship with Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Many in the crowd, we're told, responded to Jesus in this way. Many are ready to follow him. And Lazarus has a part to play in this. as a witness that this is all of God but still a witness a witness to the truth that Jesus brings the word of life a truth that every believer is called to be a witness to 
Listen to Jesus' words to his followers in Acts 1 and verse 8, immediately prior to his ascension. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you promise depending on the grace of God to confess Christ before others. These words are ones similar to them are asked of everyone who joins United Free Church. It is, if you like, part of the package. Part of the job description of a follower of Jesus. Part of the job description of one who is ready to take up their cross and follow him. Ready to associate with Jesus. That will involve cost. For Lazarus, association with Jesus brought danger. The chief priests made plans to kill him as well as Jesus. No one is likely to, make, to be making plans to kill us. But through our contacts with organizations like Release International and Open Doors, we know of those in similar situations to Lazarus. Those whose association with Jesus, their witness to Jesus, brings danger. And in some cases, even death. The word for witness in Greek is martis, from which comes the word martyr, one who dies for their faith. And again, through Release International and Open Doors, we know of those who have been ready ready to pay the ultimate price of being a witness to Jesus, the word of life. I say again, being a witness to Jesus is unlikely to cost us our lives. But increasingly in our culture, a culture in which normative Christian values are condemned as prejudice, Witness to Jesus, the word of life, will involve a cost. Are we ready to pay it? Jesus and Mary. Jesus and Judas. Jesus and the crowd. Jesus and you and I. How will we respond to him this holy week? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we come to another holy week, another Easter,
as we come to rehearse the events that took Jesus to the cross and then to glorious resurrection. We do pray that as we think, as we think of him, our response to him, Father, would be a desire to give him our all. You know the weakness of our hearts, Father. You know the frailty often of our faith. But we ask that as we go through Holy Week, we would look to Jesus and be ready to go on with him, ready to take the way of the cross. This we ask in his name. Amen.